All right, our scripture can be found uh, in the back of the bulletin as we continue going through the book of 1 Corinthians. This is 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 40. It says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition he was called, there let him remain with God. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no commandment from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined that in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well. And he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, but only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. The Word of the Lord. Have you ever played the game in your head, if only? It goes something like this. If only something was different in my life, my life would be better. And these differences, they fall into really two categories. The first is circumstances. If only I had a better job. If only I had more money. If only I had a better marriage. 
life would be good and I would be blessed. But sometimes it goes even deeper, not my circumstances, but rather I myself. If only I was prettier. If only I wasn't such a coward. If only I was smarter. If only fill in the blank. Then all would be good and I would be well. The root of this game that we play, if you play it, is spiritual. See, there are two reasons that we play the if-only game. The first is, if I were different, the reason we're playing and saying that is because the I that I am, I believe, is not worthy of love and acceptance by God. I need to be somebody else. Or if only my circumstances were different, we're saying that I don't believe that God really has my best interests at heart. And so I need to look out for myself, because if I don't, no one else will. That's what the Corinthians are struggling with in this passage. They've believed the lie of the world, a lie that we all too often live, uh, believe, that our value is conditional. And that we must change our circumstances in order to experience God's blessings. We so easily fall into these lies, don't we? And so Paul tells us the truth. That Christ has saved us, not because we have it all together, but because he loves us. And because he loves us, your life is not a mistake. The circumstances you find yourself in are not a mistake. Rather, they are the context through which Christ wants to bless you and use you in this world. And as a result, we can commit ourselves to knowing and loving and serving him wherever he has put us. The main point of my sermon is simply this. Because Christ's grace is unconditional, We can live with confidence in the condition in which we find ourselves. We're going to look at three particular points. The first is this. Number one, that God's love for you, God's grace for you, has no conditions. Number two, God has placed you in your current condition. And finally, we must look to God when making a decision to change our condition. So let's look at these three points. Number one, God's love for you has no conditions. Paul begins in verse 17, telling each person to lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called to him. This word called actually appears eight times in this particular passage. And it refers to salvation, the calling of the Lord. When the Lord called your voice and called you to himself and you became a Christian. Paul goes on in verse 18. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove those marks or vice versa. In other words, when you were called, you were born again in a specific life situation. That that wasn't an impediment to God's call on your life. That God saw you in your particular circumstance, in your particular condition, and he called you right then and there. 
For neither circumcision, verse 19, counts for anything nor uncircumcision. Paul is saying that we identify ourselves by certain things, right? Where we came from, what we own, what we do, what others think of us. But how we see ourselves does not define us. Rather, it is God who defines us. For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. Paul actually puts a twist on it in Galatians 6, 5, 15. He says, what counts is a new creation. In other words, we are defined not by our condition, our circumstances, our personality makeup, but rather by the call of God and nothing else. We saw this several weeks back, right? When Paul challenged the Corinthians in verse one, uh, chapter one, verse 26, to consider your calling that not many of you were wise according to worldly standards or powerful of, or of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise and what is weak in the world to shame the strong and what is low and despised and even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. Paul is saying that God chose you, not because you had it all together, but because he saw you and he set his affection on you and he loved you. I love Isaiah 43, 1, that says, Now thus says the Lord, he who created you, he who formed you, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I shall be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. You have a new identity and a new standing in Jesus Christ, and that is all that matters. Paul moves on and uses the illustration of a bondservant, which is uh, another way of saying a slave. Verse 21, were you a slave when you were called? Do not be concerned about it. He's speaking to Christians in the congregation at Corinth who were slaves. And slavery in, uh, old, in Roman times was not the same as American slavery, where people were forcibly taken from one nation and brought over. You know that one-third of the population of Corinth were slaves, and another third were freedmen, meaning people who had been slaves, so two-thirds of the population The reason for slavery almost always was because of economic conditions. People would sell themselves into slavery in order to to survive, with the goal of eventually buying back their freedom. And in many cases, slaves had a lot of responsibility in the household. Remember the story, the parable of the talents, where the master gives different talents to different uh, slaves or bondservants as he goes away. But even in the midst of all of that, there was still stigma to be a slave, to be on the lowest rung of the social ladder. And Paul says, were you a bondservant when you were called? Do not let it bother you. See, since they lacked human worth in the world's eyes, they could easily believe that they also lacked worth before God. Paul says, for he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. 
And likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. In other words, a new relationship defines you, Christian. If you are a, are a bondservant in the world's eyes, you have been set free. You have become a freedman, but of the Lord. You need to understand a little bit about what a freedman uh, was. A freedman is not entirely free, but rather it's a new relationship that is created, that the master becomes a patron. And the patron uh, determines that he will care for the welfare of the freedman, and in return, the freedman owes obligations of devotion and loyalty to the patron. In fact, many freedmen on their tombstones would go ahead and write that they were of this particular patron, the house of that patron. They identified with their patron. Paul is saying that you have a new identity, even though you may be physically still a slave of that person, your true identity is that you are a freedman of the Lord. You belong to him. You have a new identity and a new status. Verse 23, you were bought with a price, so do not become bondservants of men. In other words, God paid for you with Jesus' blood, and therefore, you do not need to make yourself dependent on the value judgments of men. We do often sell ourselves into the opinions of others, don't we? Even opinions of ourselves that we let define us. We want to define ourselves. See, what God is saying is that deep down, there is a part of all of us who wants to pay our own way, to make ourselves presentable to God, to get there on our own. Because we fear that if God discovered how bad we really are, then the roost would be up and he would renege on the deal. But you see, the whole point is that Christ saved us when we were at our worst so that we would know that his love is not conditioned on our behavior. I love the picture of man's creation, how man was made in the image of God. And he was designed to walk in the garden with God, in fellowship with him every day. But the fall came. Man rebelled against God. And what did man do? He hid from God, man and woman, right? In the bushes, covering themselves with fig leaves because they knew they were not worthy of fellowship with God. But God has ransomed us back from slavery. He has bought us by grace through Christ's blood. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he did all of this so that we would not be afraid. When God called to us, that we would come out of the bushes and that we would walk in open relationship with him. See, every day God walks in our heart seeking our companionship. But all too often, the reason God can't find us is we are hiding in the bushes of our shame. But God's call to us is gentle and persistent. Where are you? Why are you hiding? 
So many times we are still covering ourselves with fig leaves when we hear the voice of the Lord. So why are you hiding? What sends you scurrying for the bushes? Well, if he knew my past, if he knew the real me, what I think and what I want and how I fail, the truth of the matter, my friends, is he does. And he still loves us. And yet we feel the need to lie to God, to pretend we are something that we are not, to get him to like us, to present the self that we wish we were. And we never know the unconditional love of Jesus Christ. See, as long as we try to pretend that we are as we are not, we choose to live a lie. And the first step out of the bushes is always then a step toward honesty with ourselves. A willingness to let God see us as we really are. See, coming out of hiding is accepting God on God's terms. Allowing God to love us the way he says that he does want to love us. See, it doesn't matter if God's love for us is unconditional if we are not willing to receive God's unconditional love. But if that is what you want here today, if that is what you long for and yearn for, this is what you need to do. First, you need to ask God to help you see what makes you feel most vulnerable and most like running for cover. It may be conflict or failure or pain or shame or loss. You need God to help you see what makes you run for cover. And number two, you need to ask God, what am I holding on to to make myself feel acceptable and worthy of your love? In other words, what are my bushes? What are my fig leaves? Is it competency? Is it accomplishments? Is it goodness and your service to others? It's how you like to think about yourself and what you are most proud of about yourself. Ask God to help you see the way that you use these things to defend yourself against vulnerability. And then finally, you need to ask God to prepare you to trust him enough to let go of those fig leaves, to walk out of the bushes into his embrace. Because Christ has saved us not because we have it together, but because he loves us. Because God's grace is unconditional. This brings me to my second point. That God has placed you in your current condition that you find yourself in today. God intends to bring himself and his blessings to you in your current condition. Look at verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Notice that word that it has been assigned to him. 
Your circumstances and your situation are not random. God is bigger even than our mistakes, often many of which we feel like put us in this particular situation. As Romans 8.26 says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who is called, who he loves, which includes the sins we have committed and the sins that have been committed against us. God is greater than our mistakes and failures. Verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. And then verse 24, so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let them him remain with God. He's saying the same thing again and again. See, the Corinthians are saying, I'm in the wrong place. God is not here where I am. I need to change. But the call of salvation came to you and me and them without requiring them to alter their life position, right? Attempting to make changes in order to find the blessing of God is disregarding God's grace. Unless, of course, I'm living in a way and a manner which is incompatible with my calling. Notice what it says in verse 24. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. God is there. No matter how hard or how bleak your situation looks. We have this tendency to believe that the grass is always greener on the other side. If I was married, if I was not married, if I didn't have this boss, if I did something really fulfilling in my work, all of that is false. It's not true. Verse 19, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commands of God. What matters is that he has called us to be his and to follow him in the situation in which he has us. A Christian does not have to seek the right situation in order to enjoy Christian freedom or to serve God's call effectively. We are freedmen in the Lord. And the master has assignments for us. See, true freedom is not the absence of obligations. It's rather living in submission to God in our current obligations. And so the first step is always learning to be content in whatever circumstances you are in. Paul had to learn this, didn't he? When he was in prison, writing these letters to the churches. We see in Philippians where he said that I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance, in plenty or in want. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. See, frankly, it's in prison that you, where you learn that Christ is enough. It's in our difficulties and in our challenges and in the hard places that we discover the beauty and the richness and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. There is a saying to, that you should never follow a God who cannot satisfy you in a jail cell. And that is true. 
Now, God is not saying, Paul is not saying here to stay in prison if you can be free, right? If you are a bondservant when you are called, don't worry about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of that opportunity. But there are some things that we can change in life, and there's some things that we can't, right? I love that prayer by Reinhold Niebuhr that is called the serenity prayer that many of us are familiar with. God, give me the grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed and courage to change the things which should be changed and the wisdom to distinguish the one from the other. The point is that we don't need to change our circumstances to experience Christ. I was looking through uh, my oldest son, Mark's journals. Uh, For some of you that don't know, I have four children. My oldest son uh, uh, passed away about nine years ago. And when Mark was 16, he felt God's call to go to Nicaragua and to spend 30 days at at an orphanage. Um, And this is uh, his journal entry from his first day in Nicaragua. And he titled it, uh, Safe or Brave? And he said, teach me to love. Show me what you want me to do. See, Mark was realizing I'm just this 16-year-old kid in an ocean of pain. What really can I do to make a difference in this world, in my circumstances? And this is what God said to him in his journals that he wrote down. I want you to befriend these kids to show them that you are making an effort to connect. Simply love them and keep listening to what I want you to do. And Mark responds, you've led me this far. And of course, this is going to be a challenge. But I pray for realness and transparency. I pray that I would not let my love for you be limited by anything. And God writes to him and says, this place may look like I've abandoned it to hopelessness. But I sent you here, didn't I? Mark says, it is hard to feel like I'm doing anything worthwhile when I and the kids are sitting around. And I need to remember that although that may be true, I was called here for a reason. And it's time for me to put the principles I preach in practice. Bravery over safety. Blind faith. Uncircumstantial joy. Are you tempted when you look at your circumstances to discount your life? God is not here. What can he do through me in this ocean of pain? God can't bless me in the midst of these trials of health or relationships or my dead-end job or my loneliness or my divorce. But you see, God is with you right now. It's not out there. It's right here. So dare to trust God right here and right now. And to look for Christ in your day to day. Say to God, use me. When I walk into my office, when I'm taking care of my young children all day, when I am shut in this house, 
For your life is not a mistake. It is the context through which Christ wants to bless you and use you. Because Christ's grace is unconditional, we can live with confidence in the condition we find ourselves. And this, of course, leads me to my last point. To look to God when changing your condition. In other words, Paul says, remain where you are. But we all know that life is dynamic, right? It's not static. It's always changing. And so how are we to make decisions when we need to make decisions? And that's really what Paul is talking about in the second part of this passage. Were you, are you betrothed right now? Should you get married? I'm widowed. Should I get remarried? The context is marriage. But what is the principle that Paul is teaching us? He shows us in verse 28 and 29. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I will spare you that. Paul is saying that worldly troubles, that it is hard to follow the Lord. Okay, they weren't experiencing, per se, the Corinthians' persecution like some of the other early churches. But it is hard to follow Jesus. It's swimming against the culture. And so Paul is saying, as you are uh, going over this decision, is it going to strengthen my devotion to Christ? Or is it going to harm it? This is what I mean, Paul says in verse 29. Brothers, the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they have none. Paul is saying time is short. But Paul is not concerned about the duration of time. He's not using the word chronos. He's actually using a different Greek word, which is kairos. He's not talking about the duration of the time, but the character of time. He's not talking about how little time is left but how Christ's death and resurrection have changed how Christians should look about the time that has, that is left. See, Paul does not argue that the end might come tomorrow with its terrible afflictions and therefore do not get married. Rather, he is saying the end has broken into the present. And so you must reevaluate everything in light of the kingdom that is coming. And so when he says those who have wives should live as though he, they have none, he's not saying you should forget about being married if you're married, right? That's how some people interpret the Bible, and it's horrible, right? I can take one verse and I can justify everything. Just a couple of verses ago, he said in verse 10, to the married, I give this charge. The wife should not separate from her husband. No, he's saying, place your marriage in the context of eternity. See it in its proper light. Verse 30, those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as they had no goods. In other words, if you are mourning about the world, if that's your spirit and your heart, rather rejoice that the kingdom is coming and will be here soon. But if you're rejoicing, that's your status. Do not forget to mourn 
for the plight of those who don't know Christ and the impending judgment to buy as though they had no goods. In other words, recognize as you are transacting business that it's temporary, that it's not going to last forever. Verse 31, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. In other words, Christian, deal with the world, live in the world, but don't put your whole heart into your status and your accomplishments into the world, in the world, your business and your family. All of those things are important, but only in light of their eternal significance. For this world is passing away. The clock is ticking. The kingdom is being ushered in, and the harvest is now. And we are being called to work the fields. It was C.S. Lewis that put it this way, that hope is one of the theological virtues. And that means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking but one of the things that a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will discover that the apostles who were responsible for the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. And so how much do you think about the coming kingdom? And when you're making a decision, how much does the reality of eternity and the kingdom that has come, come into play. When you're a high schooler and choosing your classes and maybe thinking about college and what you're going to study, is this a part of your thinking? When you're raising your children, is eternity woven into the present? See, if we reorient our life to the kingdom that is coming, our decisions will be altered. So make your decisions in the light of eternity. When you think of your marriage, pray, help me to honor the Lord and to be about his business. When you work in your job or you're thinking about taking a new job, it's not just, what can I, can I make a better salary and provide for my family? But will this give me a better opportunity to be a light and a witness for Christ. When I buy this house, when I make this decision to move, do I have the right perspective? And so, I have an example. This sits on my office desk. This is the jar. Each one of these beads represents how much time I have left to live. 
according to my age and the average life age expectancy of a male. And every week I open it and I take out another bead, right? Because the clock is ticking. Now that's a good perspective to have. The Bible says, teach us, O Lord, to number or write our days. But it's not the best perspective, is it? The best perspective is God's kingdom has broken into the world and will be consummated at a certain time and nobody knows when that is, right? So how many beads do I have left in this jar? I don't know. And neither do you. And so when I'm making decisions, make decisions in the light of the reality that Christ has come and Christ will come again. And I am a freedman of the Lord. Because God's grace is unconditional, we can live with confidence in whatever circumstances and conditions we are in. Because God is there. And he is with us. So let us pray. Father, thank you that you came and found us. You set your affection on us from the beginning of time, and you affected our rescue through Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to rest in the identity that we have in you. Help us to recognize and see that you are right here with us, that you have placed us exactly where you want us, that we might experience and know you today. And as we are making decisions, Lord, help us to make them in light of eternity. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.